Welcome to the Dissolve Podcast, episode 12 of the Worrisome Cave of Lepers edition, with your host, Tasha Robinson, senior editor at the Dissolve. This week, Gravity's 10 Oscar nominations have us debating whether it'll play well on home video and whether great films can be format dependent. We checked in with Noel Murray and Nathan Rabin at the 2014 Sundance Film Festival to get their recommendations on particularly exciting films and discuss how the film festival has changed during their tenure. We return to our parental guidance suggested game for an Oscar-themed edition we hope will have you screaming answers at your MP3 player, then wrap with an unusually contentious edition of 30 Seconds to Sell. Stay tuned. When the nominees for the 2013 Academy Awards were announced, we naturally started talking in the Dissolve office about which nominees we most wanted to rewatch before the big ceremony. When I admitted to Scott that I was afraid Alfonso Cuaron's gravity would let me down when seen on a small screen at home, instead of in IMAX 3D where I first saw it, he was, as usual, appalled at every word coming out of my mouth. He forwarded the argument that great movie is a great movie, regardless of format or the viewing experience. But is that really the case? With an increasing number of movies being made specifically to take advantage of theatrical presentation, gravity being the heir apparent to Avatar in that regard, it seems like there might be more than one way for a movie to be great, and format specificity is one of those ways. Here to back up his argument is... Scott Tobias. And here, as always, to take the calming moderate view is... Keith Phipps. All right, back it up, Scott. Okay. I feel like I'm here to qualify my argument more than back it up. (laughs) Well, let's hear that sweet, sweet qualification. Okay, well, I guess my qualification would be it should be great regardless of of format. Uh, And that that if a film is diminished by a change in in format, maybe we should uh, question the greatness of said film. Well, I mean, that was sort of my original point was... I, having not revisited it on a smaller screen yet, I was afraid that once I did, I would discover that it was not as great a movie as my first impression yeah, of it that's, was. That's where, that's where I objected to it, too. And I actually, your argument, I, I, what you said, but I feel like we're not necessarily that far off because while I, I don't think that Gravity is exposed as a lesser film if we see it in a, in a smaller format, I, I do think there's some films that really should be seen in, in, in the format to which they they were first um, conceived. Uh, and that was definitely a film conceived for IMAX and for 3D. And um, I, my interest in watching it in other formats is somewhat uh, minimal, but I don't think that, you know, it, it, you know strip off the, the formatting and suddenly you realize you don't have a very good movie. I think it's a great movie, and it's a great movie um, in, in part because it takes full advantage of that format. So wait, wait, back up. I mean, if there are some movies that need to be seen in the format they were conceived, that implies that not all movies need to be seen in the format they were conceived. Do you, do you think that's true? I think some movies are more portable than others, and, and, and I, that's something that kind of I can go back to my earliest experiences watching film when before letterboxing became a, a widely used thing and so much of what I watched was on VHS or television I remember the first time I tried to watch Nashville I, I was probably too young for starters but uh, and it was cut to ribbons um, by the, the station that was broadcasting it but I also just was found it incomprehensible because because the frame is it's a widescreen frame and Altman is someone who takes uh, advantage of every um, inch of the frame and and you know you're just not getting all the visual information you need to process the same with Sergio Sergio Leone, you know, seeing that in a non-letterbox, it just doesn't really make any sense. It doesn't, it's visually uh, cruddy, to be honest. Were you when conscious it, of it, that at the time, though? I didn't think I understood. The first time I tried to watch Good, the Bad, the Ugly, I don't think I understood uh, aspect ratios at, at all. So I guess, but yet, you know, I loved those movies when I first saw them, and I first saw them on, on television, letterboxed. Uh, when, when, I, when I first saw them in full, um, you know, I saw, I saw them in letterboxed version on television. So I think... 
Uh, that's a case where a movie transports over very well as long as the aspect ratio is preserved. Whereas I think we were talking before how some just kind of need the scale. What, what was the example you were citing before? Well, I, I think movies tend to, I mean, you know, something like Gravity is such an experiential thing, you know, and, and, uh, or, or Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. The experience of seeing that on uh, IMAX is, is such a different thing than, than on video. Whereas, whereas other things that are that are shot in a format like that in a widescreen format or IMAX. Well, I don't think you have too many IMAX movies that are, you know, small contemplative dramas. But but uh, <laughs> but uh, which would be kind of awesome. I'd love to see my dinner with Andre in IMAX. But, short term uh, twelve, the IMAX experience. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But except it's short term forty eight. Uh, but it, you know. I mean, so so I mean, those things are those things can transfer a little bit easier because the the core of the thing is not if it's you know a, a drama, I suppose, uh, uh, rather than you know a a, a exciting visual uh, aural experience. Um, you know, those things transfer a little bit easier. Um, though, I mean, that's that's sort of the question I'm asking here. I guess is is there a room for a film that can be considered great that can only be considered great in one format? I mean, I, like Avatar is an experience and it made a bazillion dollars as an experience, but I, I've never bothered watching it at home and I honestly can't imagine why people would. You know, it's so tied into the scale and the scope and the 3D and like the detail of things that you can only experience on a large screen. Watched at home, it's it's a pretty cruddy story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. a lot of those aspects of it, uh, the weaker aspects of it are exposed. And I would argue the same for gravity, though I think I'm, I'm probably in the minority on that uh, in thinking that the uh, non-visual aspects of that film are are, are significantly weaker than than, uh, than than the film is as an experience. And it's just such an overwhelming experience. I mean, I just I remember that first moment where you know the camera is slowly panning across the earth and finding the characters, and I felt like I was going to fall into the screen, which mm-hmm. is something that you don't experience with a smaller film. I mean, I think we're all familiar with films that you want to see on the big screen. With the, the, the entire idea of the summer blockbuster is basically you have to go see it on the big screen because otherwise you're not really seeing the movie. And something like Pacific Rim, I mean, that thing had its own like narrative problems even on the big screen, but it's, it's there entirely for the spectacle. This analogy breaks down at a certain point, but here's here's how I look at it. Gravity is a film that was made um, with an eye toward IMAX and 3D, and it uses those very well. Uh, the Sistine Chapel is is a painting on the top of a church, and you can look at reproductions in, in page, you know, on, on on postcards or in books or whatever. But you're still not really seeing the Sistine Chapel. Uh, I'm not saying Gravity is the film equivalent of the Sistine <laughs> Chapel, but but um, you're definitely seeing. If you're watching it at home, you're seeing it removed, or or, or God forbid, on your phone or something. You're you're, you're uh, watching it removed from far removed from from the way it was conceived. That's a good point, but I think there's a pro- there's a problem that. Hollywood has actually always faced, which is uh, well, and I guess always faced since since uh, television and, and and home video is that uh, is how, how do you keep people coming to the movies? You know, and it's it's a big problem now uh, because people have gigantic uh, HD TV sets. So what are you going to do uh, to to distinguish uh, a theatrical experience from a home viewing experience? Uh, and you know, Gravity is the easy answer to that. Um, 
an avatar is an easy answer to that but those movies aren't, aren't they're not they don't stay in the theater for forever <laughs> they're there for for a couple months and then they go away um and which so- is actually i mean that just makes your analogy work even better because you know so many of us can't actually go see the sistine chapel like you know on a every weekend when we want so you know you settle for the smaller experience because that's what's convenient and and easy um while acknowledging that maybe it isn't the, the absolute best way to see it it's it's still i'm just repeating myself here well, it is still, now as it i is often, still there though as, as i still... often do i think i'm going to end up arguing the other side of this which, <laughs> which is star wars is clearly a film made for theaters uh, you know it's supposed to be seen as correct aspect ratio yet a whole generation of kids grew up loving that film watching it on vhs and rewatching it on vhs which is not you know it doesn't doesn't look great in that format but there's elements there that drag people uh into it anyway um I'm not sure. I mean, this may just be me, like holding my finger up to the cultural winds, but I don't sense a lot of excitement over the idea of more Avatar films, the idea of the, the Avatar universe. I don't. I feel like it's sort of kind of faded in terms of people thinking about it. Um, maybe it's just I didn't really care for the film, even seen in its proper format the first time. Yeah. I didn't really care for it much. Um, but uh, um, I, maybe there's something lacking in terms of the narrative or the story or, or some other elements uh, that when 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 in that case where it is so much about the spectacle. Well, we're going to find out when the next three come out. I mean, <laughs> supposedly he's expanding that world hugely and he's finally going to make the narrative live up to the visuals. But I am sort of curious whether, I mean, the visuals were so groundbreaking when they, when they happened, but like down the road, so much has been done during that time. I kind of wonder if the technology is caught up with Avatar to the point where we're not this time around, we're not only not going to like the story, we're not going to like care about the, what we're seeing on screen as much. Uh, the thought the thought of no one really caring uh, about Avatar and then making three more movies uh, is amusing me currently. Uh, just I, uh, that is just a, a huge expense. But although I think you can kind of count on James Cameron to be on the uh, uh, on the you know cutting edge as far as technology is concerned. That's that's what he he does. That does feed into an interesting point though, which is all of these movies that are made for specific uh, theatrical technology, the technology keeps becoming obsolete. You know, the technology keeps moving forward and today's movie that can only really be seen and appreciated in a theater is, you know, tomorrow's junky looking Jaws 3D was the the movie that came to mind. <laughs> we were talking about that a little bit earlier. And I saw that movie for the first time on home video. So I never knew what the, what the 3D looked like. But there are shots in that that you can see were probably pretty, pretty bad 3D at the time. And they look awful in 2D. I, yeah. I mean, just uh, like completely, completely badly converted to a point where they're not only not convincing, they're laughable. And I kind of wonder as technology moves forward, if like how much of the spectacle of today isn't going to work as the film of tomorrow. You know, whereas Leone's films, no matter what format they're in, they're always going to have great stories. You know, I think people are always going to return to them in part uh, because the acting is great, the writing is great, and the narrative is great. And the music's great too. Yeah, come on. Uh, music. Who talks about music in Leone films? Come on. Yeah, well, you always think about, you know, the, the effects being dated. It's always the thing. The effects are dated. The effects are dated. The effects are dated. What, what you know, are they convincing enough now to where they won't they won't be? Or are uh, we going to laugh at them again? This is a whole other argument where I... I exactly. Anything being dated in any way is, is always gets my, like, I don't know what you mean when you say that. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying... Have you pe- seen Jaws 3D? I'm saying people say that, Keith. <laughs> I'm saying just people say it. I don't say stuff like that. <laughs> uh, but but Jaws 3D, man, those effects. What's the word I'm looking for? Not dated, but uh, timeless. Timeless. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, no, not timeless. Something between timeless and dated. Um, uh, shit. Uh, in any case, the... Uh, yeah, no, actually, uh, I would call them shit. I think shit. that's actually a great, a great no, word I, for Though I, I did see uh, Jaws 3D in a theater. Incredibly. Uh, 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 yes. Uh, and there, if I recall, there was a head that floats uh, in your direction at some point. Some sort of an underground uh, uh, Jaws uh, or, or shark observatory that, go, that goes awry and there's like a head that floats toward you. So you, weren't, been, you weren't impressed by that? It's been the Zob weighing in on Jaws 3D. <laughs> A few decades too late. <laughs> You've been waiting for us to dissect this. I know. I mean, I know. Did, did the effects work for you at all in the theater, I guess, is the big question. <laughs> I can't imagine. I was pretty young, so I think, uh, and I was stupidly going to see Jaws 3D, so probably so. Uh, but uh, I wouldn't trust myself. Um, I mean, but- I think what uh, what today's effects are going to look like tomorrow is a- an interesting discussion. I mean, it's always kind of an interesting discussion. Because, you know, I just uh, rewatched Mary Poppins. And that movie is in some ways timeless and in some ways like visually very, very dated. And again, it's still, it's something that you can appreciate no matter what the era, but you can definitely see the seams. You know, when I first saw that film, I thought it was like, like the cutting age of compositing. And now you can see the seams. When I saw movies in the 90s, I was like, oh my God, the effects on this are so great. This is so believable. Go back and look at those films today. Oh, don't get me started. This is, this is a whole nother, this is another segment, I think, actually. Okay, well, until we get that segment together we're gonna go all watch gravity in our separate rooms in our separate ways i'm gonna watch it on my iphone just to bug keith thanks for talking guys sure i like to talk (laughs) (laughs) but in what format Nathan Rabin and Noel Murray reach longtime veterans of the Sundance Film Festival, which focuses on independent cinema, from the films seeking distribution to the ones getting a head start in the press before their scheduled wide release. Nathan and Noel have both filed extensive reports on what they saw in Park City, Utah this year, and what it says about the indie movies that will roll out to theaters and other distribution channels over the next year or two. But here, we caught up with them towards the end of their time at the festival to discuss their number one most recommended Sundance films and to talk about what's different about the festival this year. So guys, both of you have been to Sundance, you think, uh, somewhere somewhere in the realm of uh, six times, not necessarily consistently each year. Um, but you're both, I would consider both of you veterans, certainly. Has this year been any different for you? Are you seeing any, any new things at the festival or, or any new methods of distribution? Anything really stand out for you that's changed at Sundance since you started going? Well, Tasha, one of the big things uh, that I've really noticed uh, this year uh, that I haven't noticed in years before is kind of the rise of Kickstarter. And uh, a lot of movies that I've seen um, have been funded or partially funded through Kickstarter. And that creates kind of an interesting dynamic where you have all these kind of micro-investors who are more invested, literally and metaphorically, uh, in the film that they're about to see and creates kind of this connection between, you know, the audience and and the filmmaker uh, that's kind of neat, that's kind of lovely. Um, One of my favorite films of the year. Uh, God Help the Girl, uh, the Stuart Murdoch uh, musical. He's the lead singer of Ellen Sebastian. Uh, that is, for example, one of the films that was Kickstarter. And uh, yeah, that is definitely new. You know, usually uh, Sundance is a rigidly, rigidly hierarchical place. Uh, you know, you have your fat cats, you have your, you know, insanely uh, wealthy investors, you have the people who come in with just these avalanches of money. And I think things are starting to to, to mix things up a little bit. And that's Again, kind of uh, making things a little more participatory, which I think is another kind of trend of the festival, is to kind of have things be more interactive, to make it less of a passive uh, kind of thing. And and going along with that, one of uh, my big changes this year is I've seen a lot of, um, uh, not press screenings, which are very easy to get into, kind of lazy, sort of low-hanging fruit, 
but I've gone to a lot of uh, public screenings, and those are, you know, a, a lot more wonderful. There's certain electricity uh, to them. There's a certain excitement to them. I kind of feel like uh, film critics are conditioned to be jaded, uh, to have a very emotional, intellectual, not an emotional, an intellectual response uh, to movies, whereas, you know, audiences, they're thrilled to be there you know it's really really exciting and the and the, the filmmakers are there and celebrities are there and you know there's just this kind of um charge that there isn't um anywhere else and and for example this can lead to some pretty wonderful things like i just saw the um Germain clement from uh totally i'm slaughtering slaughtering his name but the uh, the tall dude from uh, flight of the concords uh made a um uh, vampire uh, <laughs> mockumentary that's very, very droll and very, very funny. He made it with the the guy who directed Boy, which I loved, another Sundance movie from a few years ago. Um, and they pretended that, you know, this was a documentary. And then during the Q&A, um, they had the audience kind of go along with this idea that they had not made some ridiculous uh, vampire spoof, but they had made a serious documentary about these actual vampires <laughs> who they then brought on. Like one of them was uh, Rice Darby, uh, who was actually the head werewolf. Um, and he's a very droll head werewolf. So there was this lovely thing where like, you know, for a half hour, there was just like this instant comedy that the audience was a part of. And they were all playing along and the, the cast was playing along. And it was just this lovely little moment that wouldn't happen anywhere else but Sundance. And one of the reasons why I really treasure it, you know, no matter how many, you know, bad things there are or how much commercialism is, there's still like these lovely, lovely moments that can only occur here. I'm I'm a little curious about how Kickstarter is being used. I I go to uh, gaming conventions every year, and I'm I'm kind of seeing the rise of Kickstarter there too. But it's very common for indie game developers to use Kickstarter less to get the project off the ground at the very beginning and more to get it distributed. Are you seeing people trying to drum up attention for uh, Kickstarters to get uh, films distributed, or is it entirely like in the making process? I'm seeing a lot of uh, Kickstarters to a kind of as as the name uh, suggests, kind of get projects off the ground to kind of uh, be a catalyst but i'm also seeing a lot of uh, let's finish this let's buy the rights you know it seems like it's never finished you know until it's in theaters and even then it's not even finished maybe because you still want maybe dvd features you still want blah 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 so it is very interesting to see you know the rise of this this third way of uh, of kind of doing things of, of funding movies of, of making people more involved uh, and more making the whole process uh, more democratic sure noel uh what's different for you this year well, uh, going back to what Nathan talked about, about seeing more public screenings, uh, this is the first year that we've had a different level of badge, and I know that nobody really cares about this stuff, but, you know, <laughs> uh, but other, other critics do. Like they, they look around, they look, they look at your chest, and they see what color badge you have, uh, and when they see that you have the red badge, they kind of go, ooh, look at you, la-di-da. Um, <laughs> but as a result of that, I've been able to kind of go around different parts of Park City than I ever have before. I mean, the previous years, I've kind of been stuck in the press screening bubble like Nathan's talking about, where you're in the same you know, couple of theaters, you're in the same lines, you're seeing the same people all day. Um, and this year I've actually spent way more time on Main Street, which to some people is really what Sundance is all about, than I ever have before. I think maybe I've been once or twice in the past to Main Street to see a movie and maybe grab a bite to eat. And this year I've spent you know, uh, whole afternoons going from movie to movie and you know, absorbing the culture of Main Street. But contra uh, Nathan, you know, Nathan talked about the, the atmosphere at the public screenings and how exciting they are. There's a different atmosphere, I think, when you're walking around Main Street. And I think that's where I begin to see what people uh, are critical about when it comes to Sundance. Because, you know, every restaurant is uh, taken up by some kind of private party. There are all these different uh, storefronts that have been uh, grabbed by some company or another to give away free stuff. 
and it's not good free stuff. It's like you know lotion samples. <laughs> they, 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 they lure you in to say, "Come get your free Sundance you know swag," and then it's like a packet of instant oatmeal. You know, <laughs> oh, Nick, come on, tell me that you don't need oatmeal and lotion uh, around day five of a film festival. Listen, by I day five, I'm, 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 I'm ready to combine the two. <laughs> one, grand, one grand meal slash facial scrub. Oh. That's when the madness sets in. So, wait, are, I mean, are you telling me you have some kind of, like, special king for a day badge? Like, the does, does the Dissolve basically have the badge that rates you being carried around in a palanquin? Or, like, wh- why, why do you have such a high-level badge? What's the deal? Pretty much, Tasha. I have no friggin' idea. But we have a badge where they just wave us all in. And there are long, 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 long lines. And they say, you people in line are human garbage. These are gods. We must show them our films. And honestly, I feel a little guilty. (laughs) I feel like I have this weird, like, I I don't deserve this fancy magic badge. I should be waiting in line with the rest of the people, you know. Um, Our site isn't that popular yet. Um, But uh, but it's really, really nice. Um, And, yeah, um, it has made everything so much easier. And we can go to any public screening, and they just, again, they they let us in. And it's very strange and very weird. But also it kind of speaks to the hierarchical nature of Sundance where, you know, you kind of look down at people's badges and you think, are you a person? Do you matter? Um, where do you rank on, on the great uh, scale of things? Um, and with this, like, yeah, I think we definitely jumped the, jumped the line uh, a little bit, which is, which is kind of exciting, but also, um, you know, I, I'm neurotic enough to, to feel <laughs> guilty, to feel a little shame, to feel that maybe I'm not worthy of this, this magical badge that goes anywhere. Maybe you Skeleton should. Skeleton uh... key into uh, the world of cinema. Maybe you should feel guiltier about uh, saying that we're not that popular. We're come on, we're we're a popular site. Let's 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 hear it for our site. Oh, definitely. I said, well, we're we're a young site. That's it. We're not we're not quite as established as your as your varieties of the world. So, you guys have been there for a while, and you're kind of you're heading towards uh, wrapping up your stay at the festival. What's really stood out for you? Like, what what's the absolute best of the festival? What should we most be looking forward to uh, seeing this year when when the rest of the peons of the world get to catch up with you, red badge people? Well, I think the biggest uh, biggest buzz film has been Boyhood. Oh, uh, God, Richard, yes. Yeah, uh, Richard Linklater's uh, 12 Years in the Making project where he, he shot footage every year for 12 years with the same group of actors uh, ostensibly to watch a child grow up. Uh, you know, the boy who is the star of the film is seven when the movie begins. He is 19 and heading off to college when the movie ends. Uh, and the whole sort of... Uh, vibe of the film is very strange because he's trying very hard not to turn this into a narrative in any kind of conventional sense. It's just a collection of moments as life passes by. And it's experimental in that way, and yet it's also incredibly accessible because these moments are things I think we can all identify with. Arguing with your parents, getting your first girlfriend. I mean, he's, he's really trying hard not to make them iconic in that way, but more just kind of... I mean, there's a lot more scenes of, uh, for example people sitting around in an abandoned house drinking beer and throwing a saw blade at plywood idly because that's what boys do when they're 12 years old, you know, um, that kind of stuff. And cumulatively, it builds into something, I think, incredibly powerful. Um, it, it's only, only screened here twice. Uh, both screenings were, um, you know, in the biggest theater in the place, and both screenings received rapturous standing ovations. Um, I think it's easy to overrate the film a little bit because of its ambition. There are some things about it that are awkward. Uh, at the same time, it is uh, incredibly beautiful. It's the kind of movie that you know comes out of Sundance and is kind of labeled as a Sundance film because Linklater is part of the tradition and culture here uh, and because it premiered here and had that response here. Um, and it's part of, I think, the festival's legacy. 
one of the things I'm most curious about with that film is, I mean, how does it compare to Michael Apted's Up series, where he's he's been revisiting the same group of people every seven years since they were seven years old? They're now the latest one was 56. Up, they're 56 years old now. I mean, that's been it's it's a documentary series, and it's been hailed as a groundbreaking thing. Whenever I see a project like this, I think of that and wonder if it's sort of aping that project. Would you compare the two? Uh, no, they're really not very similar at all. Um, I think mainly because Michael Apted deals more with big questions in the up series he asked them you know are you happy uh he asked them about their jobs you know he, he tries to kind of get a little signposts of where they are in their lives and Linklater really tries very hard to avoid doing that um to, at times it's frustrating frankly because you'll see someone who shows up that is very important to these people's lives and then they're gone from the film and you never see them again and they're never referred to again um and just they just kind of pass by but i do think you're right to, to bring up the up series because i think a lot of the early response to boyhood has talked about how there's, there's nothing ever been like this, which is not true. Uh, the documentaries have done this before. Uh, fiction, uh, I know that having it into, into the form of a feature film is different, but I think the idea of tracking people as they grow, I mean, if you watch a sitcom for you know, eight years that has kids in it, you're going to watch them grow up before your eyes. Oh, that's true. Nathan, what's what's most stood out for you? What are you most looking forward to uh, the world seeing? Uh, well, um, this will not come to a surprise to anybody who knows me uh, and my writing, but uh, one of the movies that I was most moved by uh, this year was uh, Life Itself, which is a Steve James documentary uh, about Roger Ebert based on his memoir of the same name. And, you know, it's very easy to uh, kind of turn somebody into a saint when they suffer so publicly, so nobly, when they struggle with something so profoundly. But the wonderful thing about life itself is, as the title captures, it captures all the seasons of the man, you know, all of, all of the, the good things and the bad things. Um, and they allow critical voices and it's funny and sad and moving. And yeah, it's, it's a film worthy of Roger Ebert, which is, you know, the highest praise you can possibly give uh, a movie. And yeah, I was, I was, I was moved to tears uh, more than once uh, watching it. Um, it's pretty revelatory. You know, I think people feel like they know Roger Ebert and they do, but this is such a deep uh, portrait of the man uh, and the artist and the writer. And uh, yeah, it's, Fantastic, and I can't wait for the world to see it. Uh, another film, I'm not sure whether this is the best of the fest or not, um, but that I had a really, really strong personal connection to that I absolutely adored uh, was God Help the Girl, which is Stuart Murdoch of Bell and Sebastian's uh, musical. It's about a uh, very, um, very sad young girl uh, played by Emily Browning of Sucker Punch fame. Um, and the funny thing is that both films uh, feature Emily Browning in a mental hospital, um, but they could not be two more dissimilar films. This is a really, really lovely lyrical um, sort of coming of age romantic comedy, um, very much uh, rooted in sort of the aesthetic and, 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 the, and the whole sensibility of Bell and Sebastian. Um, and it's very funny uh, and very sad. And uh, it's not a spectacular piece of filmmaking, but the music is absolutely good and has this really charming winning spirit. And I don't know that I've ever seen a musical like it before. And I can see it being a big, big, big uh, cult hit. Uh, even if it's not, you know, a big, big mainstream kind of thing. So those are probably the two movies that, you know, probably lingered uh, the strongest in my imagination, although I've seen a lot of really, really good stuff here. I've only seen a couple of outright duds. Okay, guys. So whenever we're talking about uh, film festival attendance, the th- question I always like to ask is, what have you seen that uh, that doesn't have a distribution deal? What uh, like a lot of these films are playing, and you know, we know that that Boyhood is going to make it to the public. We know that a lot of these films have already gotten deals, or they're they're being snapped up as Sundance goes on. What are you aware of that hasn't been sold yet that would be a real shame if it didn't make it to the public? No. 
Uh, I, have, I have two, actually, uh, one of which I'm pretty sure will get distributed and one I'm not so sure about. The one that I'm sure will get distributed is called uh, Kumiko the Treasure Hunter. It's from the Zellner brothers, David and Nathan Zellner, who are Sundance veterans. They had their film Kid Thing here a couple years ago. Uh, this is an odd little film about uh, a woman from Tokyo, played by Riko Kikuchi, who becomes obsessed with the movie Fargo and decides to travel to Minnesota and find the uh, suitcase full of money that Steve Buscemi's character did in the snow. Oh, really? Um, it's it's a, a very strange film. It's kind of similar to like Jim Jarmusch or Aki Kurosaki. It's you know very deadpan, very slow. Uh, but in the second half of the film, when she gets to Minnesota, um, it's it, Really beautiful, just the, the images and sort of the, the vision of this, this strange woman wandering through the wilderness trying to find this, this thing from this movie that she sure is real. Um, I, I think it's going to get distributed because uh, uh, right before the festival, Alexander Payne signed on as executive producer with Jim Taylor, his partner. So I'm pretty sure those two guys are going to find a way to get this movie to the public. Uh, but another one that I also want to try and hope people can see at some point is a, a, a film called Blind, a Swedish film. Um, about a woman who loses her sight as an adult uh, and um, starts imagining stories kind of based around the sound she hears around her. It's a very meta-narrative. Uh, you're never quite sure what's real, what's not real. It's and the main thing is, to me, is that it's extraordinarily stylish, which is something you don't ordinarily see from Sundance films. Sundance films are generally more story-driven. This movie is actually a piece of really exciting visual cinema. It does not have a distributor yet. I would not be surprised if it's picked up by somebody. However, there are at least about five minutes throughout the course of the film of uh, extreme hardcore pornography, <laughs> which uh, may make it difficult to get a main mainstream release. But uh, I imagine it'll get out there somewhere. Oh, and the, the, the Weinsteins get a hold of it. We'll uh, never see some of those segments. Exactly. Well, they, I mean, they both sound fascinating. The world can certainly use uh, more Fargo. What about you, Nathan? Well, the vast majority of uh, the stuff that I've seen so far has been snapped up by distributors really, really quickly. Um, there's a really wonderful vehicle for um, the comedian Jenny Slate called Obvious Child uh, that picked up a distributor really quickly. Um, but I guess the two films that I, I that resonated with me the most uh, also did not don't have distributors yet, uh, those being um, Life Itself and God Help the Girl. Although I cannot conceive of a world in which... Uh, a movie like Life Itself is not theatrically distributed and, and receives, you know, a, a major uh, reaction. So, yeah, those two are, are my favorites um, that have not been distributed yet so far. Um, and I wish I had a whole bunch of, you know, more obscure uh, choices. Um, but, yeah, for some reason, um, you know, distributors and me, we seem strangely aligned. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, the thing I hate most about festivals is coming out with that sense of, you know, if things don't go right, I may be the, I, like, uh, the audience that I saw this with may be the only group of people that actually gets to see this movie. So I'd, I'd much prefer you not having a, an answer to that question because everything <laughs> is uh, coming to theaters near me as soon as possible. Well, let's just hope that the cream rises to the top uh, when it comes to the Sundance Film Festival this year. And the best will get out there and will make an impact. Well, thanks for reporting in from Sundance, guys. Uh, obviously, we're very, very jealous, but we're certainly glad to hear hear from you about all of the fantastic things you've been seeing, and we look forward to the rest of your reports. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks, Sasha. Bye-bye. And now 
now for the game portion of this week's podcast, we're returning to Parental Guidance Suggested, which we haven't played since episode three. I'll be reading excerpts from the IMDb Parents Guide, and it's up to you to determine what film I'm describing. Keep in mind that these parental warnings are user submitted, so they aren't always the most gracefully written descriptions. Also, in honor of the coming Oscars, we're having an Academy Award theme this time around. Every single one of the movies I'm about to describe is a Best Picture winner. Here to play are Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Matt Singer. Ready, guys? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think I'm already. I think I'm already intimidated by by the gobbling. Uh. <laughs> okay, we're gonna play this one very slightly differently from from last time. You can buzz in at any time, uh, but I will continue to read uh, read the description so everybody gets the full description. Um, and then remember that Scott Tobias rule is in effect, so we are docking points for incorrect answers. If you get it wrong, you have to stand down for a minute and give other people a chance to get it right. Uh, so here we go. Number one. In America, individuals supposedly of Iranian descent are briefly shown being wrathfully beaten. Mm. Argo? Correct. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Wrathfully. That seemed too obvious. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Definitely do not stand down from this uh, game because something sounds too obvious. Just just go for it. Uh, This one, one, in fact, uh, would be a great example of that. All right. uh, Number two. There is not a lot of conventional swearing. However, there is quite a bit of racial slurs used, mainly against Italians, but towards other races also. The Godfather? Keith Phipps, yes, The uh, Godfather. I'm waiting for the one that's like, Gandhi is killed. <laughs> <laughs> I, left out, I left out the ones that actually had the, uh, the title's name in the middle of the, the description. All right, number three. In one scene, a character uses close to 20 each of F and S words. Christ's name is abused twice, and God's is misused at least once. The British crudity bloody is used more than a dozen times. Another British profanity, booger, <laughs> these are elided, is used about ten. There's a handful each of the words dun, buttered, ah, and h. Wow. We're just looking at Keith to see if he gets this one. <laughs> Think of a recent Best Picture winner with a, a whole lot of swearing in a single scene. The King's Speech? Correct. Uh, you, you put a question right. mark in the end of every one of these and you're getting them all right. It felt, it just, that felt too obvious. So Stop right. it with the felt Stop too obvious. Stop it with the too obvious. Oh, go, is, go, with the, go with your gut. Okay, number four. A very intense and often tragic movie about mental problems and corrupt people. <laughs> Matt Singer. A uh, Beautiful Mind? No, you are incorrect. Wow, you're in, you're in negative points already. What, what do you guys think? What's the clue again? A very intense and often tragic movie about mental problems and corrupt people. <laughs> that, that is not that gracefully written. All right, here's a second clue for the same movie. A patient kills himself with a glass shard because he is afraid the nurse will tell his mother he had sex with a hooker. Yes, That's Keith? One flew with a cuckoo's nest. You are correct. Oh. It's already out of reach. I'm pretty sure that happened in A Beautiful Mind, too. <laughs> <laughs> the hooker or mental problems and corrupt people. All right, number five. Mild language such as damn hell and bloody, a couple of blasphemous utterances of the name of Christ, and a couple of utterances of the racist term wog. I know why you're looking at my phone. Gandhi? No. <laughs> no, though that is actually a good guess. No, uh, what, uh, what, other, what other best picture winner took place overseas where... <laughs> British people consider anybody who's not white to be wogs. Yes, Matt? Uh, 
Oh, now I'm now completely doubting what I was going to say. Uh, uh, I'll say Slumdog Millionaire. No, Scott Tobias. Uh, Chariots of Fire? No. Son wow, nobody bitch. got it. Uh, this is Lawrence of Arabia. Oh. Lawrence of Arabia, very full of wogs. All right, number six. That's offensive, Tasha. <laughs> it is a racist term, according to Lawrence. <laughs> no, it, it is. It reminds me of, like, of Mean Streets. It's like, because I've never heard of it. It's like, what's a yeah. mook? No, it's got an interesting history, but I was no time to get into that here. But yeah. okay. okay, number six. A character has sex with a woman who is not his wife. No body parts are explicitly shown. This is very sensual. <laughs> Also, the dead deer Ooh. in the movie are real. Deer hunter? <laughs> no. Matt, do you have a second? Do you have a different guess? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was searching my head. Like, my are, there, are there dead deer in that film? See, that's where I went with the, well, she says it, if it sounds obvious, it's probably correct. Right. Uh, I did the same thing. Yeah. Actually, I mean, is there any deer hunting in Deer Hunter? There is. <laughs> been a long time i just remember the wedding uh that one is but you did see out of, out of the furnace which basically has the same scene in it so um wh- which one was it that was that's dances with wolves ah, it is very central all right number seven the naval battle is pretty intense the chariot race is very intense a man going into a cave filled with lepers is worrisome it's been her correct all right nice. how are we doing uh, keith's knocked himself down with some negatives so uh, this might know, still I'm, be an open I'm, race i'm feeling very confident all right, as we pull into, as we pull around the first uh, circle in Ben Hur, in the Ben Hur chariot race, we've got Keith at two, Scott at negative one, and Matt at negative two. Oh, wow. I, wow, I thought this was, having listened to the last one, I thought this was going to be easier. No, you is, guys seem to be pulling titles out of like thin air the last time around. So, mm. all right, let's see, uh, let's see how we do. There is a scene that is played two or three times throughout the film of a man and woman having sex. The woman's breast is seen, and he moans a hell of a lot throughout. (laughs) (laughs) Should be a parental advisory for that parental advisory. Breast singular is how I'm thinking through this versus (laughs) breast plural. Think of all the movies with a single breast. Let's try Beautiful Mind for this one. No. No, it is not. Um, (laughs) Yes, Matt? How about Titanic? No, oh, it's a, it is, this is a much more sexual movie than that. Single breasts, lots of moaning. More sexual than Titanic? I think more, uh, <laughs> the more key is that uh, the scene is played repeatedly throughout the movie. That was what I thought would be the, the big key. Also, uh, a second clue for this one, <laughs> which is not going to help. I just found it hilarious. Under frightening, intense scenes, the end can be very upsetting. And this film is very depressing. <laughs> Mm. Okay, well, oh, we're just going to move on. That one's Midnight Cowboy. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. Uh, I keep forgetting that one. Once, uh, there's some moaning in that one. All right, number well, a hell of a lot of moaning, apparently. A hell of a lot yeah. of moaning. All right, number nine. Sex without marriage is implied often in the movie, and being a courtesan rather than a wife is presented as a viable way of living. Huh. Scott? The Last Emperor? No, although that's a great guess. The Last Emperor didn't have any really good ones. Hmm. Wow, negative three. This is a movie that uh, everybody may wish to forget (laughs) one best picture, but it is pretty much about a young girl who becomes a courtesan. I was going to say The Last Emperor, too. They didn't didn't make a sequel to that. uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's a musical. I I meant T.O. It's like The Last Exorcism. It just doesn't make sense. Think I'm coming I think, up with I think anything. everybody is just trying to forget that Gigi was a, a best picture. Oh, winner. Gigi. Uh, I like, I like Gigi. 
Gigi, heaven. but it's been a long time since I've seen Gigi. For a little Thank girl. heaven for little girls. You don't like Gigi, Tasha? For a little girl. Is it the best picture winner? I mean, uh, it's, I mean, it's certainly got its benefits, but I, I mean, it, it presents being a courtesan rather than a wife as a viable way of living, Keith. Mm, I, yeah, I, I, I think I saw that movie when I was 12, so that I didn't really... <laughs> it went over your head. All, that. All right, number 10. A scene where a character gets drunk and breaks stuff with the baseball bat. This may be domestic to some viewers. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, uh. So it's not the movie Domestic, because <laughs> that's domestic for all viewers. Yeah, did Domestic Disturbance win an Oscar for Best Picture? Kramer versus Kramer. No. Damn it. Baseball bat. Baseball. Just, My I'm God, just, you're I'm, really I'm, racking up the negative. I know. Here, I just, Scott. I just, I want to play here. I just want to play. Can you read that clue again? A scene where a character gets drunk and breaks stuff with the baseball bat. This may be domestic to some viewers. <laughs> this is this is too poorly written. <laughs> yes, Matt. I'm gonna guess uh, American Beauty. No. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm just trying to think of best picture winners here. That I'm going to strategically not guess anything. That is entirely fair. All right, that, that one is Rocky. Oh, huh. You don't remember the wow. scene where a character gets drunk and ba- breaks stuff with the baseball bat? The, the world's only baseball bat? Yes. He's a boxer. He's not a baseball player. That's right. I don't. I just watched that movie. I don't remember that. So scene. wait, they were outside the home, so it's definitely not domestic, right? Uh, well, for some viewers. Yeah. <laughs> All right, number 11. A man tries to rape a woman. He lays on top of her and kisses and licks her. She tries to escape and bites him. He calls her a bitch and slaps her. Might be disturbing to some. Scott. Silence of the Lambs? No. Damn it. (laughs) Anybody else? race to the bottom between Scott and I. (laughs) (laughs) It's not Gigi. (laughs) Well, that also happens to Gigi. It was such an unforgettable scene in Silence of the Lambs, though. <laughs> that scene doesn't happen. <laughs> uh, a, there are struggles. It's I have no. There's there's no uh, angle in me actually guessing. So most of point. the uh, most of the rest of the parental warnings in this one were about torture. Yeah, torture and somebody taking uh, somebody being offered drugs to like to live through torture. Uh, this is Braveheart, guys. Oh. Got it. <laughs> All right, we're definitely coming into the... uh, See, that's the one I want to forget. (laughs) Coming into the end stretch here. Uh, Number 12. A character stabs a tiger with a sword, but surprisingly, no blood is shown. This one also not Gigi. Yeah. Yes, Scott. Gladiator? Yes. Hell yeah. Correct. Don't call it a comeback. Seriously, don't don't do it. It's not quite a comeback. (laughs) Number 13. A woman screams and breaks a medicine cabinet mirror with her fists after medication makes her husband no longer interested in sex. Goodness. Best picture winner, not Gigi. We've heard this one several times already, guys. Wait, uh, uh, a beautiful mind. Yes. <laughs> Way to go, Scott Tobias. Right, We're calling out. it a comeback at this point. Okay. Number 14. Well, of course he's not interested in sex. There's all his conspiracies to uncover. <laughs> well, he's, he's very, very busy trying to carve things out of, his, out of his body at that point. Two characters kiss on a beach. Men, dressed as women, dance in slightly suggestive ways. There is an illustration on a calendar in which a woman lifts up her skirt to show her garters. On the next page, she is seen in a bikini. Sounds racy. <laughs> it is fairly racy. You might guess that this is a, a rather an older film. All right, read it again. Uh, two characters dressed as women. Two characters kiss on a beach. Yep. Men dressed as women dance in slightly suggestive ways. 
Matt Singer. Uh, from here to eternity? No, <laughs> that is the famous uh, kiss on a beach scene. Apparently, that happened in more than one uh, more than one Best Picture winner. Oh, I got nothing then. But I'm not sure anybody in uh, the here to eternity <laughs> dresses as women and dances in slightly suggestive ways. All right, anybody? Any other guesses? That that one is Bridge on the River Kwai. Oh. Yeah. All right. What are we? Uh, what are we looking at for score? Well, We've got Keith with two, Scott with negative three, yeah. and <laughs> with a whopping negative. Scott five. Tobias rule bites its inventor. Oh, uh, this may be another one of those editions. Uh, there was I can't remember which game we did, but where we got so many responses from people who were like walking their dogs, screaming at their iPods. I know this one. Oh, definitely. So yeah. this may be the uh, the make the users happy, make the players sad one. Yeah. Um, all right. Here, here's uh, number fifteen. This is not actually. Uh, going to be a tiebreaker but it is going to be a race to see who gets it first uh number 15 a man ran into a woman's knife he ran into her knife 10 times (laughs) what seriously (laughs) he had it coming all along matt singer Chicago? You are correct. Ah. (laughs) I finally got one right. Tasha, Tasha, this is only best picture winners. Oh, no. <laughs> nice try. What? All right. Nice try. I'm sorry. You cannot erase history, not even with the IMDb parental guide. All right. I'm sorry, guys. Uh, I thought this. I. Why, why is it when Scott, Scott runs the game, you guys like magically make up answers? Does he have like cue cards that I, I'm not giving you guys? I don't, know. Uh, I don't know. I think you, you made this. You made this. Uh, you put the, put the ball on the tee, and we we still swung and missed on this one. Well, you know what I have to say I, about I, that. I got some points. Yeah, except I, for Keith. Yeah, I, I have to say that the end of this game can be very upsetting, and this game is very depressing. <laughs> and I moaned a hell of a lot throughout. Oh wait, no, that's Midnight Cowboy again. Thanks for playing, guys. Thank you, Tasha. Thanks, Tasha. Thanks. As usual, we'll wrap up with the recommendation portion of our show, 30 Seconds to Sell. We're impatient people with a lot of films to watch, so we demand people recommending more films to us tell us what's great about them as quickly as possible so we can get back to the films. So here, two dissolvers have exactly 30 seconds each to sell the host on a movie or something related to cinema, a book, a soundtrack, an abstract idea, or whatever else they want. The host gets to pick who sold their idea best in 30 seconds and then is morally obligated to take the recommendation. Up first, we have Keith Phipps. Keith, you ready? Yes, I am ready. You have 30 seconds. Shoot. So basically, I spent a lot of time in the last couple of weeks watching some television streaming uh, with my wife. And, it, you know, it looked good. It was good. It was HD. It was fine. Picture quality is mostly pretty good. And then I came to work and I watched In the Heat of the Night on Blu-ray. And I got to say, it's not, streaming's just not there yet. You, there, I, I really want to keep the idea of, of Blu-ray as sort of a, a fine archival or close enough to archival format for films going on there. It's just not... I, um, you know, people talk about physical movie being dead, but I don't think it's quite there yet. Oh, my God. Okay. Well, you're certainly arguing something that's uh, near and dear to my heart. Uh, Scott Tobias, are uh, you going to... See? See? I'm appealing to... Uh, you're appealing oh directly no. to the judge. It's like no. that $50 bribe that you slipped me under the table. I'm going to sell the idea of Tasha's clothes being pretty. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Scott. You're uh, you're coming in at like a negative uh, 10 oh, on the rating is, scale this, this already. This is not good. This is not let's, good. Uh, let's hear it. What are you, you going to sell me in 30 seconds? All right. Early in the show, we talked about what a difference a format can make. So I wanted to encourage people to buy or rent Michael Mann's Thief on Criterion Blu-ray. 
Uh, I'd seen the film twice before, once on VHS and again on a very crummy DVD transfer. As much as I liked it, I had written off as sort of a rough draft of the type of movie man would pull off more slickly later with movies like Heat. Uh, but this is a reminder that, uh, that the film is actually every bit as gorgeous as man's later work, and it completely changed my perception of the film that I already loved. <laughs> Both of you kind of had a, an, like an unusual uh, yeah, trying to see? get out of this as, as smoothly as possible. Like rather than charging across the finish line on that one, you both you both brought up short. That was a sort of an interesting effect. Yeah, I had other things to say, but uh, it, but they're like two seconds or something. Oh actually. God, wasting my time with two extra seconds yeah. would have been a, a wait. And I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't even talk about that. I said no. That I, I delivered like I, I wanted to deliver. That was solid. Well, you're both champs. So you're both uh, you're both in under the line, and you're both uh, you're both giving me things that are dear to my heart i don't even know um keith's 50 dollars bribe and uh blatant complimenting of my clothes is very tempting but can i award a tie nope tag <laughs> i i, I, I want to flip a coin i'm i'm giving it to scott for not blatantly pandering to the judge you oh. guys are both great and i think your clothes are pretty too you both hmm. make great arguments and you came in under time so really everybody's a winner except keith today <laughs> thanks a lot guys <laughs> That does it for episode 12 of the Dissolve podcast. We'll be back in two weeks with lucky number 13, just in time for Valentine's Day. In the meantime, you can experience the Dissolve on Twitter, Facebook, or Tumblr, as well as in website form at thedissolve.com. If you have any questions, comments, or topic suggestions for the Dissolvers, please send them to feedback at thedissolve.com. The Dissolve podcast is produced by Genevieve Kosky with assistance from Colin Griffith. If you want to yell at Scott and Keith for not knowing all the lyrics to Cell Block Tango, they're on Twitter is kphips3000 and Scott underscore Tobias, respectively. Thanks for listening.